Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner, and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Good morning. I'm Mike O'Donnell, and with my partner Bethany Abley, we are the co-moderators of Title Nerds. This is our sixth podcast, and we thank all of you out there who are listening to this podcast with bated breath. Today, we have a special guest from outside of the firm, from one of our favorite title agents, Madison Title Agency, Sam Shield. Now, Sam, I've already said that you work for Madison Title, but before we get into what you do for Madison Title, what Madison Title is, can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start in the title industry and what have you done so the listeners can get some perspective of your vast knowledge and expertise? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Really is my pleasure to be here and working in New Jersey now for 17 plus years. I hold your firm in the highest regard. Speaking to our mutual friend, colleague, client, Deb Smith, who was instrumental on having you join the show, we really do think highly of you over at Madison. And like I said, it is a true pleasure to be here. And, you know, I'd also like to, you know, welcome the others from your team that are on this call and welcome the tens of listeners that are probably listening to us uh, now. And I hope we could deliver what they've uh, come to hear. That's yep, very please. kind of you, Sam. And thank you for saying our readers are at least in the double digits. We're excited about that. That's good. That's good. Okay, good. Sounds like we all have large families that are joining us. So, you know, and to be fully transparent, my agent thought it would be a good opportunity for me to plug my movie that's coming out soon. It's called The Easement. And it's a prequel to Romeo and Juliet's story. It takes a look at the Nazis and the capitalists and the source of their arguments, which actually related to an easement in their property. So look for that in theaters soon. My landing in the title industry is really the, really the classic American dream. I grew up in a different country. I'm new to the U.S., a proud citizen. And I grew up in a country where there was no title insurance. And I remember when my parents moved to a new home, I was probably eight years old, and I specifically asked them about the insurance to the home ownership. And I was really taken aback and suffered for a long time, knowing that they didn't have any kind of insurance policy and would the land record be sufficient. And it was something that I grew up with, and I had to deal with night terrors and all the rest. And then when I got older... I sort of became a title bully. If someone had a pen in school, I would take the pen and, who owns it? Oh, really? Where's your insurance policy? And we would bully people into buying our insurance policies. And uh, I got into a bad group of title gangs, basically. So I essentially needed to get out of that environment. And I knew I couldn't make a life for myself in Canada. So when it came time to choose an American law school to pursue this dream, 
of going into title insurance. It was a natural thing that I would go to a U.S. law school, which I did, and heavy focus on title naturally because of that background. And I found myself out of law school working at the Chicago Title National Business Unit in Manhattan. And I worked with some of the best and I really learned the business well. It was just the the center of the action, Midtown Manhattan, working with all the big law firms. And it was great exposure and, and the superstars of the industry. I had the opportunity to go on closings with them and help on clearance and really, thankfully, learn the industry that way. So I spent nine years at the NBU as counsel at Chicago Title. And then after a little while, I decided it was time for a change. And a friend of mine had just taken a position of Chicago Title to start up the NTS, National Title Services, for a steward office based out of Connecticut. And he and I were good friends. And I joined him shortly thereafter. And we really grew that department into something special, eventually taking over the New York NTS as well. And we did a lot of good things together. During that time, we had some out-of-state agents bringing us their work to their transactions that they were not big enough to handle, either because of the sheer size or because they were in states where they were not licensed. And I worked on some very large portfolios for this particular agent out of New Jersey, a company by the name of Madison Title. And I had heard of Madison Title, and they had a very solid reputation. After working on some of their deals, I was delighted to have a phone call, and they essentially asked me to come to their agency to build up a national department. And it was a big decision moving from the direct shop of Chicago Title and Stewart Title, both top in the industry, and again, working with some of the top players. But I did make the decision to join this agency. So after nine years at Chicago, Stewart for four, fast forward, I've now been at Madison Title for 17 years, and we've really grown to be one of the premier independent title agents in the country. We have an incredible book of business. We do things right, and we like to think we do as best as anyone in the business for our customers. And volume, I think the results speak for themselves. So that's my history in coming into the industry. Sam, I think you referred to Madison, and I certainly refer to it as an independent nationwide title agent. I think Madison is maybe licensed in all 50 states. I'm not certain. But what is an independent nationwide title agent for our listeners out there who didn't learn about title insurance at the age of eight like you did? Right. So basically, I always compare it to car insurance companies where you could call, let's say, Liberty Mutual directly and speak to a Liberty Mutual office. Or you could go to a mom and pop agency on the street corner that will write for Liberty Mutual and some other companies as well, Progressive, Geico, etc. So in the case where you're going to Liberty directly, that would be the equivalent of going to a Chicago title office. And if you want to keep it local or if you know people at this agency, you've heard good things about them, you're going and you're not dealing with the 
owners of the company that will be issuing the policy, that you'll be speaking with the staff that work for the insurance agency that could offer you products of different carriers and even lines, if that example would be. But I think that's the best way to look at it. So when you're coming to Madison Title, you're still going to be getting the same product we issue for all the major companies. If you go to Chicago Title, they will issue the same policy on their own paper. So the agents, they bring some things to the table that the direct office cannot. And in fairness, the direct office will bring some things that an agent cannot. We like to think, and I'm confident we have achieved this, that we are, you know, very well equipped, very well staffed to do, to borrow a line from Annie Get the Gun. Anything they can do, we can do better. But I'm a little biased at this point. And what's required to be a title agent in a state? Does Madison have offices in all 50 states? What does Madison have to do right. to register? Can you take right. us through that? So every state is going to have their own restrictions. Some will be, you know, very, very minimal to open up. New York historically is one of the easiest. You have to have, I mean, we'll say in some states you have to open up a shop and have an agency agreement and get a license from the state. In other states, we have a big operation in Texas. Texas, you have to own a title plan. You have to have bricks and mortar. You have to have licensed escrow officers in that office. Productions done in Texas. In other states, you have to post a bond with the state and everything and anything in between. We happen to be licensed in approximately 40 states. And we do market ourselves as we have the ability to facilitate deals in every state. The reason we do that is because we don't want a customer that's using us in Texas, Ohio, Maryland. We then have to send them away when we get their deal in New Mexico. In New Mexico, the premium dollars cannot leave the state. It's cost prohibitive for anybody that I know of to open up a title agency as an out-of-state agency. So what we do in that scenario is we still have a tremendous book of contacts relationship, and we still service our customer in that state. What the customer doesn't know is every penny paid to the New Mexico office we're working with is their money to keep. So we don't make a penny in New Mexico, but we will still be front and center. We know who to call. We know who will help us. We know the customs, but we're not making money there. We're not licensed there, but we really want it to be a one-stop shop. So we don't have to tell our clients, pick and choose, go to this one for that deal, come to us for the other. So we will not turn down any state and the clients don't need to be concerned how much money they're Title agency is working. You know, we're going to be making 85%. Some states we make 50. Some states we make 70. Some states, like New Mexico, we make zero. But it's all okay. This is the service we provide. And you mentioned in Texas you have to own a title court. What does that mean? Take us through that. Yeah. So it's now become more centralized. But historically, as I understand, every county would have their own title plan. And in order to issue title, California is very much the same way. I'll get to that in a second. You have to own a piece of that title plan. So if I wanted to issue a commitment for a property in Harris County, Texas, I had to own a title plan. It's essentially just buying into a service. All the title plans are obviously in existence. We have to pay them in order to have access to their service. 
then by work share agreement, etc., then you could write it to other counties as well. So that takes some doing. Now they do have companies that you could buy into their company and that will give you access to the plans. But it's still to this day there are some companies that have there are some counties that have different restrictions, you know, who can come in and we work very heavily with the underwriters there on their agency division that will help us get the title done. And, you know, there are instances where there might be a small county where the title plan insists on taking a portion of the premium in addition to any search work. So you do have to make significant investments in that state. Again, you have to have licensed escrow officers, title plant ownership, fixed mortar. But Texas, thankfully, is a state that has exceptionally high premiums. So it really has been a win-win for us. Phenomenal success in Texas. We have offices in Dallas and Houston with great lawyers and sales reps. And between that, the market and the premiums, it's been a home run for us for years now. But then you go into a state like California. California, we have a very nice book of business there. It's been a very active market. But right now, we are not licensed there. And we do look at it every couple of years because there is such opportunity for us there. But the mechanism of opening up there, very restrictive. It takes a long time. You have to post bonds with a state. Or I think it's over a million dollars. You have to have staff. You have to have fixed and mortar. Separate escrow and title departments. It's not like what we're used to in the Northeast where you have title handling, escrow and title. And the premiums, unlike Texas, are in the low end. So it really would take some serious commitment, a very, very big book of business in order for us to open up in that state. So I'm not saying never. At this moment, we're writing with other companies, and we earn a referral fee. We Again, as far as the customers are concerned, we're front and center. It is not the same as being licensed in terms of the revenue. I think you told us, Madison, basically, rights for every underwriter, all the majors and a lot of the locals. Right. How do you work with the underwriters? The underwriters are, you know, they're split up between their direct division and their agency division. And I imagine to some degree they compete with each other because obviously direct wants to earn the same business that the independent agents want to keep. So if you're or first American, for example, you want to have your direct offices being happy, but you also want to have a nice stream of agency work coming in as well. And you know, so all the underwriters have separate departments agency versus direct. Some of the smaller players have agency only, so you don't face that same challenge. But the big ones, so for example, Chicago, I mean, the Fidelity family is, you know, as you know, Fidelity Chicago, Commonwealth Lawyers, probably a couple of others out there, and each of those have agency departments, and we write for the Fidelity family, for the most part, in many states. Our largest relationship is with Stewart and Old Republic, where I think without exception, we write in every state with them. And again, both of those companies have significant direct and significant agency support. And then we write for players that are not quite as large, like a Westcore or an Amtrust. 
and those are agency only. And, you know, it's very good to us, but they do not yet have the name recognition that the big guys have. The only company we don't currently write for is First America. What services do uh, title agents provide other than simply issuing policies and title searches? Anything else? Sure. Well, you know, it's soup to nuts, as they say. We will be asked about, you know, the order comes in, we're given the PSA, we have to make sure the escrow agreements are to our liking, we hold the escrow deposits, we will very often, the survey is already out there, we will obtain survey quotes from different companies so they could find their best options that are affordable or reputable. And, you know, we could be the go-between for that. We order the ancillary searches, depending on what the state custom requires. We produce the commitments. Ideally, we get, you know, a prior commitment to prior policy. Uh, at minimum, legal description, street address. So the more, just generally speaking, if any listeners are in the situation, they probably know this already, but the more information you get to us, the better. If you have a prior survey, we might be able to save you significant money on not needing anything more than an affidavit of no change. So no survey would be necessary. And and that we try very hard to get the underwriters to sign off and we really push to get those affidavits. We will get the necessary title affidavits. Any clearance work, the issues mechanics claims will work to resolve those a bonding or work stops or whatever the issue might be. The endorsements Make sure that everything you've been asked to pay for by your lender is actually relevant. Then as we get closer to closing, we prepare the settlement statement to give you our fees. We collect fees from all the different parties. We get ready for funding. Nowadays, there is a lot of work involved in the security of the wiring and different protocols we have to follow, which sometimes can be very frustrating for a client, but I could keep you on the line for another half hour telling you some horror stories, why we do the protocol that we do. And then we take the documents for recording and issue a policy as soon as we can after the fact. I mentioned out west, they have different functions for title and escrow. So the, the latter part of what I just mentioned would all be done by a separate department. Seems to work, but, you know, a lot of us in the Northeast get very troubled when we have to speak to Someone and we're told, no, 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 I'm only titled. You got to call that. So at Madison, and I, I think most shops out here, there's the one point of contact. A lot of our discussion has to do with holding escrow. Some clients, some lenders are only comfortable having the underwriter holding the funds because they have greater name recognition and stronger presence across the country. So we accommodate that request. It really doesn't affect us at all. We have all the underwriters on board, willing and able to help in that regard, and the agent will make the disbursements if we get a closing protection letter, and they let us do the funding. My own personal experience is that Madison does a phenomenal job with that, and it's in everybody's interest to let us do it, but I certainly am aware that parties not familiar might have that request. So, again, we're very accommodating we like to have certain protective language in the PSA or the supplemental escrow agreements. But, you know, like I said at the outset, we do everything soup to nuts, and I think we do a very good job at it. We've had a lot of acronyms, just so we're clear. What's a PSA? 
No, purchase sale agreement. That's right. That's purchase what I thought. Agreement. I think most of our listeners would understand that, but I just want to make sure that. Right. And if you have the medical community listening in, they might now, be thinking other things. So. Now, you sort of hit on a hot button topic, wire fraud. It's a huge issue for us. Can you just tell the listeners sort of what protocols Madison follows to sort of prevent wire fraud? Safeguard. I shouldn't say prevent. Right. No, you have to have a verbal call. You have to make sure you understand how these are going to be coming to you. We just had a an email that was intercepted where we received an email from seemingly our clients, but directing us there where the funds should go elsewhere. So, you know, I don't know if anybody in the industry has mastered the protection. So it's you know, you might have instances where somebody will say, oh, my bank doesn't require that, and my bank does it differently. We're all in the same boat just trying to protect ourselves and each other. These manners of fraud are so sophisticated now, it's really troubling. And, you know, we've had some very, very close calls as a result. I just heard of a company last week, the name is slipping my mind, that I know one of our underwriters was using it, and we were going to look at it as well, where they, they have a very strict protocol winner. They safeguard parties. And heard of another closing where the person said, you will only get my instructions by WhatsApp. Um, that was their own way of protecting themselves. So, yeah, it's a big issue. I said jokingly to my wife over the weekend that somebody wants to make a big business that you go into Fraud editing, because we had received an email from Chase, and of course, we didn't take it seriously, but I did note how many errors there were in spelling and punctuation. Guys, come on, have some self-respect. So, I'm sure some bad guy will go into the business of editing fraud solicitations. Thank you, and you're right. With wire fraud, it's almost not if, but it's when, and any strict protocols you can adopt, such as verbal verification. You absolutely have to. You've been in the title industry, I think, almost 30 years by my account, maybe a little more. How has it evolved since you first came in? Technology is the main variable. When I came into the industry, I was pretty darn excited to have a fax machine in my office and uh, barely, barely knew what email was, but it was on my black and white monitor and very difficult to maneuver. And obviously, we are where we are today, significantly different, no longer waiting for mail and FedEx and closing documents and arriving by email and e-recording. So in that respect, a lot has changed. And the same thing, you know, we've seen, not exclusively, but many county records across, across the country. Some of them are still old school, some are not. That's on the technology side. One thing I really do love about the industry, and, you know, we joke about the word title nerds and my fictional story that I hope everyone enjoyed about how I became a title guy. I happen to really love this industry. And there are some wonderful friends I've made over the years at different companies in different regions of the country. It's very nice. And the community is small enough that more or less, you know, of each other, you meet each other at different events, you close deals together. And it's, you know, with some exception, it's not that cutthroat. Everyone sees themselves in the same boat, sort of a self-deprecating attitude of where the title guy stands in the big picture. You have fancy Nancy firms like 
right? Good calling us title nerds and not being offended because we're title nerds. So, so I really do like the industry. So that part hasn't changed. I still feel like I'm working with a good group of people in-house around the industry. And, you know, everyone sort of knows their place in the, in the title transaction. As I've heard people say, one service a title guy always offers is the, the first one they could be yelled at when somebody else messes up. And that service is provided frequently by all title people. You go into a closing and you meet the players around the table. And, you know, this is Mike Jones from X law firm and Mary Stephanie from the next law firm. And he's the title guy. So it's that kind of treatment, which I just get such a kick out of, doesn't bother me at all. At the end of the day, we know who really does play a pivotal role in getting closings done. So that hasn't changed in my years. The one thing other than the technology that has changed is source of business. When I first started in 1993, my perception was it was the big law firms that were directing titles. They were telling their clients, we are using Chicago, First American, etc. But then over the years, I think primarily because the title agencies started growing, that resulted in people realizing, hey, the guy at my golf club is a title agent. Why is my lawyer telling me to use his guy if my best friend or my brother-in-law, you know, is selling title? I'll start using them. And I think that caused a lot of business to shift to principles of transaction rather than the big law firms that were controlling this historically. Is that your perception as well? Yes. A lot of businesses still through law firms. But yes, the title industry has certainly opened up to the public and consumers, and it's available. You go on the Internet, you can search for all these uh, vendors that are modernized. Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. You don't have to necessarily rely on your lawyer. Well, Sam, this has been great. We thank you for taking uh, time with us. Now we're going to give you my last question. Can tell us what makes Madison unique in your opinion? And I know that you guys have a fantastic plant down in Israel that allows you to do 24-hour service, which is obviously one of the right. things that makes unique. Well, I'm sure there are others. So why don't we end with you right. telling our listeners what makes Madison special? Right. I appreciate the opportunity. And I do truly believe Madison is a special, unique place. The level of commitment that we have up and down from most senior management to an entry-level staff member just starting starting out of a seminary or university, the I can't even identify what it is, whether it's the, the warmth of the company, the, you know, the, the perks by way of, you know, coffee or donuts or parking or whatever it is. The staff from day one is very, very loyal. And that becomes the willingness to work around the clock. The retention rate is beyond belief. People stay with a company, and I think they see that they can grow with a company. And the company, they take good care of their employees. And in so doing, they earn back the staff, their willingness to work late days and weekends. And that just brings in more business. So everything is tied together. As far as the senior level management, they, for the various businesses that they currently have, they've tapped experts in their own field 
and brought them in to run that business. So, for example, a 1031 company is run by two individuals that have like tremendous experience and brilliant minds in the world of all things 1031. They know it's solid. I always tell my title customers, even if you're not using us for 1031, you have to call them because they'll give you the best advice. But again, he went out and he tapped best people for that. We have a cost segregation company, same thing. Engineers and big firms that were doing it there, CPAs from the top firms running the company. We have a lease abstracting company, stock code company, and again, people that know the industry really well. I like to think of myself. I was doing national title work for 15 years before I joined Madison, and I like to think I know the industry well. And they asked me to join, and I think our department has grown beautifully. And then the last thing I'll mention is, like you said, we have our secret weapon in Israel, where we have approximately four or 500 employees, somewhere in that range, different offices across the country. And some of them work Israeli hours, where it's a seven-hour time difference. Some of them work American hours, so their workday will start, you know, in the evening. And it really becomes 24-6 service around the clock. On Saturdays, we rest. But even on the day we rest, we have that seven hours where we're in, and seven hours later, we're there out because of the time shift. But it really is essentially around-the-clock service. These are all English-speaking professionals that moved to Israel for idealistic reasons, want to raise their family there. And they're anxious for jobs that are, you know, where they could use their native tongue. And again, the retention rate there is through the roof. And you could order a title search, depending on the jurisdiction, if you order a title search at 5 p.m. and it could be done electronically, you could have the commitment in your inbox at 3 a.m. And, you know, it's all sorts of things. If, you know, because we're an agency, one of the things we bring to the table is that if one of our clients is using, I won't name a name, it's been, you know, X title company. X title company couldn't approve, let's say, a mechanics lien matter. So they could pick up the phone and say, Madison, we're using X. Could you get it approved on Y? And we run it by Y. We know who to call because of the volume we do. We have connections with the top decision makers. And then once we get that approval, we could take commitments that were issued in a different company and just in a matter of minutes, hours, our Israel office will have them recreated. We'll run our own title searches, of course, and pay cancellation fees. But we're getting the deal at the end of the day, which is, you know, tremendous. We love being able to offer that kind of a service as as an option to others. That's what I enjoy most about being an agency is that when a company says no, we say, let's try. And we call a different company a different company. And we shop and, you know, we really truly do have access to the top decision makers because of the volume we do and the trust we've established with the underwriters. So, yeah, that's basically why I think all your listeners should consider using Madison Title. It's a very good shop and one I'm very, very proud to be a part of. Thank you, Sam. I think that's all we have for you. We appreciate your time. And with that, I'm going to turn the podcast over to my partner and co-moderator, Bethany Abley, and she's going to talk to Desiree and McDonald about our case of the podcast. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so and much. Thank you, Bethany, for taking over. And again, thank you so Happy much, Sam, for being on today. We really appreciate having you on. 
I will say I was pretty impressed when you said at the age of eight, you knew about title insurance because most people I know don't even know title insurance exists until they go to buy their first home. So <laughs> <laughs> I always see your firm as the pioneer in naming rights. I think it was a brilliant move for a law firm to get the naming rights to Rikers Island. I'm sure that's paid a lot of dividends over the years. <laughs> and I hope you all stay away from it. But good stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate right, you being you. on today. Happy holidays. You, you as well. I am pleased to have Desiree McDonald on this morning to discuss our case of the podcast today. Desiree is one of the newer members of our group, and I will say a superstar. Even though we have only worked together for about a year now, an absolute superstar in our group is so lucky to have her. So welcome, Desiree. Thank you for being here today with us. Thank you for having me, Bethany. And the case that we're going to talk about today is coming out of Colorado, and I'll let Desiree, I'll let you introduce and give us the name and the case site, please. Okay, so this, like Bethany said, this is a case out of Colorado. The case is Loviento Blanco LLC versus Woodbridge Condominium Association, Inc. The citation is 489P3D735. And it's a recent case, I believe it's June 21st, 2021, so you know, a little under six months old. And as we usually do, we like to try to give you guys an update on recent case law and a little analysis of them. So if you could, Desiree, tell us a little bit about the case. And I think it is funny that it's a prescriptive easement case. And our guest earlier today apparently is saying that prescriptive easements or easements in general are the reason why the Romeo and Juliet tragedy happened. So I don't know about that, but... <laughs> Yes. So this case involves a claim for adverse possession or in the alternative, a prescriptive easement. Back in 1975, a construction company had built condominium buildings and sold a large parcel to the Woodbridge Condominium Association. There was a smaller parcel abutting the property, but that was not included in the sale. We'll call that the disputed parcel. From 1975 through at least 2012, the Woodbridge Condominium Association used and improved the land as if they were the owner. For example, they installed the gravel on the road, they installed a sprinkler system, they maintained the landscaping. In the early 1990s, Woodbridge and the construction company exchanged letters discussing the use of the disputed parcel. And as I'll explain later on, the court really discussed these letters as key factors in the court's decision. In 1991, Woodbridge wrote the construction company a letter requesting permission to plant trees and shrubs on the disputed parcel. The construction company had responded that Woodbridge could do so as long as they would not maintain a claim to any improvements that it would install. Woodbridge did not reply, and instead they offered $10,000 to purchase the property. The construction company never responded to this offer. Later on in 2010, the construction company later sold the disputed parcel to Loviento Blanco LLC, who presented Woodbridge with a plan to build on the disputed parcel. Woodbridge was not too happy with this, so to block the development, Woodbridge brought an action seeking either adverse possession of the disputed property or a prescriptive easement over the parcel. 
And Desiree, before we get into what the court held, and I do know that this went through various courts of appeals and whatnot, it went up the court system a few times, I think. But just to kind of go into a little bit more of the facts, I thought it was interesting that some of the other items, I know you mentioned the sprinkler system, which I thought was pretty interesting that, you know, you don't technically own this land and you're going <laughs> putting a sprinkler system on it. You mentioned the landscaping, the gravel road. I believe they also installed a picnic table and a split rail fence. They also had a chain link that they put up. They also had signs in the area of the disputed parcel saying Woodbridge condominiums. So I thought that was an interesting thing that they were taking all of these actions. And as you mentioned, when they had the letter asking permission, the property owner said yes, under certain conditions. And it included, quote, as long as you have no claim for the property, the trees, the shrubs, et cetera, for the improvement. And so I know eventually the court said, well, yes, you got this permission with conditions, but you never responded. So it's not going to be a permissive use when you didn't agree to those conditions. So I'll let you get into that a little bit more about what the court held. But I just thought it was interesting. And I think those facts kind of set this apart. I think the court thought that that set this apart from a lot of other cases we see, because you don't normally have somebody going and asking the property owner for permission. And I think in this case, the fact that you had the letter coming back saying, okay, as long as you're not trying to claim my property, and then just kind of nothing. And then I think there was one other fact after that, in addition to the permission request, there was also the offer to purchase the property. So you have them saying, okay, we're not agreeing to your conditions. And by saying it, they didn't actually say it. They didn't, they never responded. They didn't respond at all. No, no response. They'll continue to use the property as if it was their own. <laughs> exactly. So in my mind, that no response was a response. <laughs> and I think the court thought that as well. But then after that, they said, all right, well, I'll send you property owner a letter offering to buy the parcel. And let's see if I can buy the parcel. And again, I think a fact you don't necessarily always see in these cases and one that I thought the court found important as well. So I'll let you get back to telling us <laughs> what the court found. I just thought, as I said, that I thought these were pretty interesting facts that we had in this case. Those are interesting facts that we don't usually see. So the trial court originally found in favor of Woodbridge on its claim for adverse possession, but that decision was overturned on appeal. The appellate court held that the letter offering to purchase the disputed parcel was fatal to Woodbridge's adverse possession claim, because like you said, Woodbridge acknowledged the construction company's ownership of the disputed parcel. Therefore, Woodbridge did not claim exclusive ownership of the property, so its use was not adverse. On remand, the trial court found that Woodbridge established its right to a prescriptive easement, and the decision was upheld by the appellate court. Logan Toblanco appealed further, and the Colorado Supreme Court granted cert. So here at issue, the Colorado Supreme Court addressed whether under Colorado law, an adverse occupier's acknowledgement or recognition of the owner's title during the claimed prescriptive period interrupts the prescriptive use and defeats the presumption that any use was adverse. That's how the Supreme Court framed the issue. So Loganto Blanco argued that it could rebut the presumption because of those two letters, because Woodbridge sought permission to landscape the property back in 1991, and then subsequently offered to purchase the disputed parcel. However, the Colorado Supreme Court rejected both of these arguments. First, 
the court said that the mere fact that Woodbridge requested permission to landscape the property did not interrupt its adverse use, as its request for permission was denied. Second, as to its attempt to purchase the land, the court held that this could not defeat the claim because exclusive ownership was not required to establish the prescriptive easement. So ultimately, the court concluded that because Woodbridge's recognition of the owner's title did not interrupt the prescriptive use and because it had established all other requisite elements, Woodbridge had established a prescriptive easement of the disputed parcel. I know the court noted that the elements for prescriptive easement are different than the elements of an adverse possession claim. And I agreed with the court in this sentence where they say, quote, and this makes logical sense. A claimant seeking an easement does not necessarily disagree that the purported servient landowner holds title to the property, end quote. So I think that kind of shows you what they were thinking there, saying, hey, this person's not saying that they own the property. They're saying they just have the right to use it. And one thing I wanted to point out as well, the appellate court made a point of saying they use two different standards of review here, that for the question of what elements are required to establish a prescriptive easement and what factors defeat an easement, that's a matter of law. That's going to be a question of law, and it will be a de novo review. And they said, quote, we, however, review a trial court's findings of historical fact, including whether a claimant's use of a property was adverse to the owner's property interest for clear error. And they noticed whether possession is Hostile or adverse is a question of fact to be determined by the trier of fact. So I just wanted to point that out, that there were two separate standards of review here regarding, you know, question of law and question of fact. They use different standards of review for each of those. So I figured I'd point that out to the extent that our title nerds found that interesting, because I did. <laughs> is there anything else, Desiree, that you wanted to tell us about this case? I think that's all I have for the case. But I will take this as an opportunity. I don't have a movie to promote like Sam, but I will promote our blog, the Riker Danzig Bank Title Insurance and Real Estate Litigation blog. So for all of our listeners at home who are now a part of our Title Nerds family, you can find our blog on our website. We post every Tuesday and Thursday. So definitely check that out. Sounds Thanks, good. That's right. And Beth, that was great. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today and for continuing to listen to our Title Nerds podcast. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds, presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.